Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. This is the fourth episode of She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. In the first episode, we looked at the tough reality facing women and gender diverse people when it comes to housing in Canada. In the last two episodes, we heard directly from women at the front line of Canada's housing crisis. In this episode, we'll be speaking about the specific challenges that gender diverse people face with housing. As we heard in the last episode, you are most likely to be in housing crisis if you're living in poverty or have to move quickly because of violence in your home. We also heard that if you're a woman, you are much more likely to be experiencing either or both of those challenges than a man would be. For the next two episodes, we will be talking about the specific experiences of gender diverse people in accessing and keeping housing, which is another level harder again. In the case of pay, for example, there are not even regular statistics captured in Canada on the pay gap between gender diverse people and others. But point in time surveys, including the January 2023 study on housing need and homelessness amongst gender diverse people done by the Women's National Housing and Homelessness Network, paint a stark picture. 84% of gender diverse participants in the study didn't have full or part time employment. And 84% of the participants in the study identified as being a survivor of trauma and abuse. When I was preparing for this episode, I realized that as a woman with a lot of direct experience with poverty, violence, and thus housing precarity and homelessness, I felt comfortable providing some commentary about those experiences in the previous episodes. While I do have a trans kid and have seen the challenges they've faced firsthand, It's not the same as direct experience. So for the next two episodes, you'll be hearing less of me and more of our guests, including Erin Monroe, who I will turn it over to now. My name is Erin Monroe. Um, I live in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. Um, I'm a registered clinical counselor who worked in the downtown Eastside for 20 years. I got interested in in working in particular with um, trans and gender diverse and queer folks um, because of my own experience in the downtown Eastside. I transitioned a little over 20 years ago, um, and and um, it was right around the time I, I first started working down there. And um, I remember being struck with feeling how unsafe the world can feel, when, particularly when you're at a place where you're um, trying to discover yourself and the world's trying to make sense of of, the, of what you're trying to project out in the world. And that sense of, uh, of not being safe dissipated pretty quickly. When I got down to the downtown east side, I met um, folks who didn't have some of the class privileges that I had, or perhaps the race privilege that I have. And um, I was quickly struck by how fortunate I was and and um, what unsafety can really look like, um, particularly the trans woman who I met. And so I, I was involved in a couple of initiatives um, other than just doing work with, with folks as I, as I went on my journey as a support worker and, and later as a leader down there. One was to open up. Uh, queer, trans, and two-spirit specific housing um, for for youth. Um, and then later on, I assisted in opening up an adult housing project uh, for, for trans women. Um, and both those initiatives were really important to me. Um, I think it's hard to explain um, how unsafe the world is when, when it's so unsafe outside for you and, and you've got nowhere to hide inside. For these reasons, homeless, trans, and gender diverse youth 
tend to be extremely hidden and difficult to find with support services. I asked Erin how youth found the housing. Youth generally found us, honestly, often through their doctors. We took a lot of referrals from physicians who had kind of uh, dedicated their lives to working with with, um, trans youth. And then some through service providers and some youth found us through each other, which is always um, amazing too. So some of the youth actually knew each other when they came into the program. We did do some third-party research on it that might be interesting. I think it was at around the two-year mark. So this program uh, accepted folks, the LGBT, sorry, LGBTQ2S across the spectrum. Um, but you had to be homeless for at least six months in order to meet the way that we were funded. Um, at the end of that two-year mark, uh, 59% were Indigenous and 69% were trans. So if you look at those letters again, you know, lesbian, gay, bi, like these were not the kids that were being referred. We took everybody who was referred. When I later went on to um, help influence opening up adult housing for trans folks, we we just made sure that we fixed the mandate. So the mandate for that program is 50% BIPOC because we knew who's outside. Um, and that when we started taking referrals in for that program, it matched those numbers. So again, what we're looking at is what, where are the intersections that are causing people who maybe even as trans movements get um greater and greater and, and um, more apt at meeting some of the challenges and barriers that are out there. We also know that there's still some people being left out of that movement. <laughs> Aaron has really captured the challenge of intersectional identities that we spoke about in our last episode. If it's hard for policymakers to understand that there are many kinds of women who have many different experiences in the world, you can imagine that they also aren't thinking about the same being true for trans and gender diverse people. This is a great time to bring Avery in. We met Avery at the end of the last episode. Avery exemplifies intersectional identity. You can't see them on a podcast, so I asked them if they could describe how someone who met with them on the street might see them. Yeah, so my name is Avery Shannon. My pronouns are they, them. I am a queer, trans, non-binary, person of color settler, and I am a youth adopted out of foster care and am multiply disabled, including being autistic and a wheelchair user. I am primarily an activist far too often behind a megaphone and I say far too often because I wish the world didn't have so many issues to be worked on. I've advocated in mainly indigenous sovereignty and climate justice alongside queer and trans rights, disability justice, sex workers rights, and I'm living on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples in Hastings Sunrise where I share a basement suite with a roommate. I asked Avery if they could tell me a bit about their housing journey. Yeah, I moved out of my parents' place when I was 16. Um, I just wasn't doing well there. And I also knew that my relationships with my parents would drastically improve if I did so. I moved very spontaneously. I realized that I could move out. It just occurred to me that it was a possibility. So I got a job that week and... Um, managed to find a space to move into that month, I think in less than a couple of weeks. Um, My first space was a basement kitchen that was basically a narrow hallway in which my twin bed barely fit between the wall and the cabinets with the sink. Um, It was a communal house of 7 to 11 people, which meant that it was pretty busy and chaotic. But at first it was it was really nice. Um, we had we had a great home with really great folks. And 
as people moved out, it unfortunately developed into a space that felt quite unsafe. It got to the point where there were nights where I actually slept outside in a playground instead of going home to that dynamic. We took a break in Avery's story here, and it's a good time to unpack this moment a bit. Often when we think about violence in the home or what can be referred to as domestic violence, we're thinking about intimate partner violence. But the reality is that violence can come from anywhere, including a roommate who is a non-intimate partner. You might wonder then, why have roommates? But as Avery's story continues, it gives you a good sense of the economic reality of roommates for people renting in Canada's housing crisis. So after my first place, the communal house, the folks, the two folks who I got along with quite well, and I began looking for somewhere else, we managed to find the basement suite that I'm currently in, where I moved out of after about a year. And I then based myself and my stuff, rather, out of my parents' home, but was living in a gravel field on Burnaby Mountain, which is a um, suburb next to Vancouver, where there was an Indigenous front line to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. So I was pretty much living um, in a tent under a larger pop-up tent, helping to run the run the blockades on the front line. So I was there for almost a year. And then after that, I moved into a basement suite that was also in East Vancouver, um, also in Hastings Sunrise, for folks who are aware of the area closer to the Peony, and was there with a really great roommate who is now my chosen sister, I was scouring because it wasn't the greatest basement suite. It was, it did the job. It was close enough to transit. It was um, a space to live in. The rent was cheap, but it wasn't my ideal place. My ideal place was where I had been living right after the communal house. So I had been watching and hoping that I, might have a slim chance of snagging it back um, at some point. And I saw the listing one day. So that very day, I emailed the landlords. The next day, my roommate and I went to see them and the suite, and we signed the lease right then and there. The way Avery talks about this place, it sounds very special. So I asked them if they can tell me a bit about what makes it such a great space for them. Absolutely. Um, it is affordable, relatively speaking, for Vancouver and for my income. Um, it is exactly where I want it to be in terms of location. It's got excellent transit. There's everything I need around on the main drag, Hastings Street. The landlords are amazing, which makes a huge difference for me. I would happily pay slightly more per month for a space that has good landlords versus a place that does not. I think it adds a lot of value to 
one's ability to be happy in their home. And I'm also I'm also happy at in a garden level basement suite. For those that don't live in Vancouver and might have been wondering about that emphasis in Avery's last point, garden level suites are generally not considered that desirable in Vancouver. They are often dark in a city where it rains for six months of the year. They can be loud if they aren't well insulated from your upstairs neighbors, and there can be humidity and mold problems. But for Avery, it's a practical issue as they do rely on a mobility device part of the time, and that makes a lot of housing, including main and upper floors of houses, off limits to them. So for Avery to find ideal housing, affordable, good landlord, right location, it's a much harder challenge. I asked them if they can talk a bit about the practicalities of having a roommate. The forefront reason that I live with a roommate is for affordability. Um, But I also am someone who really benefits from having someone else in the home where there's someone to say hello to, there's someone to ask how their day was. I mean, there are costs that are shared as well, such as internet um, and utilities if those aren't included. So there's a lot of aspects in just in terms of practicalities, um, as well as the camaraderie. In terms of roommates moving out, I have had roommates where they had partners that they wanted to move in with. Those were two roommates in a row um, with both my chosen sister and the fantastic ideal roommate that I I managed to find after her. And then once they moved out, I did cover rent um, myself for the entire place for a couple of months because I was able to at the time and after my previous experiences decided that I was not going to settle for someone who was not a good fit. I was going to play the longer game and invest in in keeping my space into what I needed it to be. Um, So I did find someone after a couple of months. They were really great for the first year that we were together and then our living situation our living dynamic somehow deteriorated um so i actually just gave them 60 days notice that cited that it's been really honestly miserable to live with them and it wasn't doing my mental health any favors And that was a really hard decision to come to because housing in Vancouver is super scarce. Um, It's very difficult to find, keep, maintain, and um, move into. And I in no way want to unhouse someone from a place that is really great. So it it was a decision that that took me many months to actually execute. Roommates are a double-edged sword, but either way, it's a necessity for Avery. I ask Avery what impacts challenges with roommates and housing instability has had on their life. In terms of roommates impacting your day-to-day life, that is pervasive. There is the constant reminder that you are either not welcome in your home 
or you are um, in direct conflict or passive aggressive conflict. And for that to be where you call home, especially in COVID when so many of us are working from home as well, um, it truly does affect how you carry yourself throughout the day. If you start your day with hostile exchanges between your roommate, as I have had, that is how your day begins. It's how your day has been started and the tone that has been set. In terms of housing being unstable, there is always the chance that as a tenant, especially in Vancouver, you may not have your home in, say, two months. I asked Avery to tell me what they see as the future of housing for trans and gender diverse people. My biggest hope for the future of housing is that we need housing to become more available. We need it to become more accessible and we need more. We just need more. Um, We need to have more options for unhoused folks and people in SROs who don't want to be in SROs. We need supportive housing, especially for youth um, who need it and want it. And I would love to see more co-ops and more co-housing. I think those are fantastic ways of both creating housing and creating community. My kid is around the same age as Avery and came out as trans over a decade ago now. I've seen a lot of change in that decade, here in Vancouver especially, but also in the wider provincial, national, and even global context. But it is always a danger in basing your understanding of public policy on personal experience. So I asked Aaron what their perception is of where things are at for trans and gender diverse youth and adults. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that the world, well, particularly, I don't want to say the world is getting safer for trans people or two-spirit folks, because I don't think that's entirely true. Um, but in the context of British Columbia, a lot of really important work has been done for access to health care, um, gender-affirming care that's appropriate and respectful. There's been a lot of a lot of work in a very short period of time. Um, and along with that, there's been a, an increase in social acceptance of understanding that trans people even exist or that t- two-spirit is a thing. Like, like all of these things have, have um, um, greatly advanced in a very, very short period of time. Unfortunately, what some of the research is telling us is um, because queer, trans, and two-spirit youth are coming out sooner, they're unfortunately ending up homeless at younger ages. So the reality is, is, is even if the general public has a greater understanding for that individual youth in that home where it's not safe, that might not be true. And we have to face facts. We live in a society where um, transphobia and homophobia are, are, are still strong enough to make parents hate their children. Um, and that, and that's, a, that's, that's a big statement. There's a lot to unpack in that answer. So I asked Aaron, what does it all mean for the future of housing for trans and gender diverse people? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, there's there's a right wing movement that's um, really gathering storm against trans people. Um, a, a little bit in Canada, definitely in the US, definitely in the UK, and definitely in Australia. So it, I mean, it's a pretty scary time in terms of trans people um, accessing healthcare. Um, playing sports, you know, like for youth, so to tell them that they shouldn't be physically active is a pretty big statement, isn't it? Here in, in BC, and I don't, I'm not up on the rest of Canada, we've we've shown some amazing progress. Um, we went from having to have gender clinics to uh, most primary care, just treating um, gender affirming care like any other kind of healthcare. 
trans people have existed and two-spirit people have existed forever. Like it's in every culture and every, this is not a new phenomenon, but the ability to medical transition is still fairly new. And one of the things that's the most exciting to me right now is there are children growing up and never having to go through a second puberty, right? There are children who are uh, younger than me, you know, and they're, and they're hitting puberty and it's being managed appropriately. And they're able to just grow into their own gender and think about going to university and having a good life. And that's in a very short period of time. Um, why housing for um, adult trans uh, homeless folks was important to me is we can't forget the fact that we've got a whole bunch of people who went through terrible systems, were treated horribly in schools, through healthcare, by their own families, you know, who had really, really tough lives filled with a lot of violence and stigma. We need to figure out how a way to take care of them as we're promoting this completely different experience of being trans for young people. In our next episode, we're going to meet Susan Gapka, a woman and trans activist who was instrumental in helping to draft legislation in Ontario to protect gender identity as a human right, even as she faced her own housing struggles. Susan is going to close us out today. Well, my name is Susan Gapka, and I live in Toronto, downtown Toronto, actually, right near the heart of the city. I use she, her pronouns, elle francaise, s'il vous plaît. I'm very blessed to be in, um, I'm in social housing, fought hard to get this housing. Uh, we can talk a bit more about that, but um, I'm, um, I'm an older Caucasian white person with a lot of privilege, but I, I've lost a lot over my life. So I have a bit of a story to tell you about how that all happened, but I'm in um, uh, subsidized housing in downtown Toronto. And I want to tell you, tell you and the listeners just how important that is for people like myself and others. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room and housing for women and gender diverse people. To find out more about the She, They, Us campaign, you can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage, where you'll also find resources from this episode and can add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.